Our most gracious Father, we thank you for gathering us here this morning. And now, Lord, as we come to your word, we once again thank you for it. We come as people who are famished, who, who are hungry for our daily bread. And so we pray that this day you would give us our daily bread, that as we study your word, you would nourish our souls, nourish our hearts, strengthen us, grow us in Christ's likeness. Teach us more about yourself. Teach us more about our desperate need for Christ in order that he would be glorified in us, in order that we would be more conformed to his image, in order that we would be more drawn to him, more uh, more stirred in our affections toward him, and less drawn to the things of the world. May Christ be glorified in this time. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, I invite you to turn to John chapter 3. We are still in John chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 14 and 15 today. In the passages that have led up to this passage, we have seen that the primary theme has been the sovereignty of God in salvation. And yet, a couple weeks ago, uh, as I was preaching verses 11 through 13, one of the things I told you guys is that the sovereignty of God and salvation does not nullify man's responsibility before God. Now, there is an aspect of mystery there, an aspect that we can't completely understand. Here's what we know. God is sovereign over salvation, but we also know that man has the responsibility to believe. Now, that seems a little bit like a paradox, but God hasn't revealed to us exactly how that works out. All we know is what we've been told. Preach the gospel to everyone. And everyone has the responsibility before God to believe. Now, the New Testament text was written in ancient Greek. Koine Greek is what they call it. And if you were to look at modern works in Greek, you'd see that the people who, who write in Greek and, and uh, you know, type in Greek these days, they use these thing called, uh, things called quotation marks. But one of the things that makes translating, or at least interpreting to an extent, the, the ancient biblical Greek text difficult is the fact that when the New Testament was written, they did not use quotation marks. And you can understand how that might make some things very confusing. In fact, there was nothing at all that, uh, that marked when a sentence began or that marked uh, when a quote began or when it ended. And so thus, part of a Bible translator's job is not only to figure out what the, what the words mean, but to figure out who's saying what, to figure out where, where a quotation starts and where it ends. And sometimes that's really clear. Sometimes it's really obvious, but sometimes it's not so obvious. And so I, I bring that up to, to say this much. As we continue our study of the Gospel of John uh, today, we're going to be looking at the portion of John chapter 3, which m a lot of uh, modern translators and, and scholars uh, have come to believe probably marks the end of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus uh, and, and his preaching at the Passover festival. Um, there's a significant change in intenses that happens in verse 16, uh, which we'll get to next week, in which Jesus is referred to in the third person singular. 
Um, so it's hard to say one way or another where uh, what Jesus said uh, begins and ends, or at least where it ends. It's pretty obvious where it begins, but where it ends is very difficult. But here's what we do know. Uh, whether verse 16 is Jesus speaking or whether it's John adding his own commentary to the conversation that took place between Jesus and Nicodemus, any and all commentary, whatever John has to say, uh, is God-breathed. It's, it's Spirit-inspired. Uh, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, as all Scripture is. And so, no matter who said it, it's as authoritative either way. And, and it's, it's still uh, sufficient. Scripture is still sufficient. It's inerrant. It's infallible. Just like all the other parts of Scripture. But the text that we'll be looking at today leads up to that part. The text that we'll be looking at today at least appears to possibly mark the end of the dialogue. Jesus confronted empty religiosity over and over again. And that's one of the themes of John. That's one of the themes that we we started to see back in chapter 2. You'll remember when he turned water to wine. Uh, Remember that the empty basins were... Uh, that were used to hold the wine were an illustration of the emptiness of religious ritual. And after Jesus filled the basins with wine, he went and at the end of chapter 2, he he emptied the temple of impurities, driving out the money changers, driving out the marketers who were profiting illicitly and unjustly from the, the sojourners and the pilgrims who were in Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. Both of these instances involved Jesus confronting empty religiosity. And then when we came to chapter 3, we saw once again Jesus confronting empty religiosity. Only this time, it's on a more personal level. Nicodemus is the one who gets confronted. Nicodemus, who exemplified empty religiosity, came to Jesus apparently in an attempt to schmooze him. Apparently in an attempt to tempt him. And Jesus interrupted Nicodemus saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That had nothing to do with what Nicodemus was saying. It was just Jesus confronting his empty religiosity saying, I'm not going to have any part of it. You don't know what you're even talking about. And of course, this led to an ensuing conversation, a discussion between the two of them about the new birth. The act of God replacing the unregenerate heart of stone with a heart of flesh and putting his spirit within the individual, causing them to obey his laws. This is what was foretold in Ezekiel chapter 36. And that's why Jesus uh, responded in in just sheer astonishment uh, when Nicodemus knew absolutely nothing about the new birth. Remember what he said? He said, "Are, are you the teacher of Israel, and do not understand these things? As if to say, how how can that be that you wouldn't even have the slightest clue about what is necessary, what you need, the new birth? And what we have to see is that Jesus was confronting the empty religiosity of Nicodemus, who was a representative of a larger group. Remember the people at the end of chapter 2 who had an empty, shallow faith that Jesus would not accept. But Nicodemus exemplified that. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and like the other Pharisees, he knew the Scriptures. He had spent his life studying the Scriptures, and yet 
The tragedy was that he did not know the God of the Scriptures. Nicodemus, like most people, put his confidence before God in himself, in his ability to be good enough to please God. But the gospel message, friends, the good news of reconciliation with God starts with a person understanding that they don't have the ability to please God. It starts with a person understanding that they cannot live up to what God requires. When a person feels a sense of despair, and learning that should cause a person to despair. In our day and age, I understand, that seems very offensive. But it's grace. It's love, it's mercy. Because when a person feels that sense of despair toward themselves and toward their very best efforts, when they come to understand that they need to be forgiven of the best that they can do, that's how bad it is. That's perhaps the first sign of spiritual life. Because they're suddenly aware of something that's required of them that they are unable to do, that they are unable to fulfill. The gospel is an entirely different tree. So it's like taking down a tree. But it doesn't start by taking down one branch here and and one branch there. No, it aims at the foundation. It goes for the root of the tree. And thus the good news of the gospel starts with a person understanding the bad news. And the bad news is that their best efforts are sinful. Their best efforts are insufficient. Their best efforts cannot please God. Their best efforts cannot reconcile them to God. And that the unregenerate man who has not placed saving faith in Christ Jesus thus remains under the wrath of God. And this is exactly what Jesus has done with Nicodemus up until now. He's taken aim at the root, at the foundation of Nicodemus's identity as a Pharisee, as a self-righteous individual. He's taken aim at the pride, at the self-confidence of Nicodemus and everyone else, by the way, who was present. Those who were putting a shallow, superficial, unacceptable type of faith in the Lord Jesus. He showed them the condemnation of God under which they stood, declaring that they had refused Christ's testimony, even though what he was saying was evident to them. And thus they had no excuse for their disbelief. But the wrath of God, with the wrath of God established against Nicodemus and against those who were at the Passover festival, whose religiosity was empty and vain, and with the justice of God's wrath against them established, Jesus acts next in great mercy, showing them their ailment, showing them their sickness, their disease, showing them their need. And so what he does next is to show them the cure. So the passage that we'll be looking at today is John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. And the point of this passage is that Jesus Christ is God's appointed cure for sin, God's appointed refuge from his holy and righteous wrath, which is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the wisdom of God unto salvation for all who believe. So let's read the verses uh, to start off with. Let's look at verses 14 and 15 if you have your Bible with you. Verses 14 and 15 say this. 
Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will, have, will in him have eternal life. The problem that Nicodemus faced was not unique to Nicodemus. It was the same problem that the people at the festival faced, and it's the same problem that people to this day are faced with, and that is this, that ours is a fallen race. The human race is fallen, despite the fact that God had given Adam everything he needed back in Genesis 2, everything that he needed to be content. And thus Adam had every reason to be content. Adam nevertheless coveted the one thing that he did not have, and that is the very status of God. And so we should understand that when Adam and Eve were tempted to become like God and subsequently broke the one law that God had given them by eating the fruit of the forbidden tree of good and evil knowledge, Paul tells us that Eve was, was deceived, but that Adam wasn't. It's very significant. Adam was not deceived. That tells us that Adam's rebellion was willful and deliberate. And the wage of his sin was death. Not physical death, not immediately anyway, but spiritual death. He fell. His nature fell. And when his nature fell, the nature of his offspring fell as well. Paul starts off the book of Romans by arguing in the first two and a half chapters that all of humanity is under God's condemnation as a result of sin. He says in chapter 3, verse 9, both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. In other words, this is a universal disease, a universal dilemma. And he goes on to quote the Old Testament, which tells us there is none righteous, not even one. None seeks for God. There's none who does good, not even one. It's as if he's surveying all of humanity and sees that there's no goodness. Is there even one? No, there's not even one. What's the cure? What's the remedy? That's what Jesus is getting at here. Jesus is getting at what the remedy is as he recalls a very interesting story in the history of Israel. There's a point in the book of Numbers as the Jews were making their way to the promised land when some of the countrymen were taken captive by a Canaanite king. And Numbers chapter 21 verses 2 and 3 tells us of Israel's response to their countrymen being taken captive, and that's followed by God's response. So we read this, so Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. Verse 3, the Lord heard the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites. Then they utterly destroyed them in their cities. Thus the name of the place was called Hormah. Now, you would think that having this prayer answered, that, that seeing God deliver them in a desperate situation, seeing him respond faithfully to their prayers, would have strengthened them, would have grown their faith, would have grown them in their, in their love and their affections for God. But the interesting thing to note is that it actually had the opposite effect. Rather than drawing them closer to God, it pushed them away from God. 
Because we read in the verses that follow that the people become impatient with God almost immediately. Rather than being grateful, rather than being thankful, rather than being content with what God had so graciously provided for them, verse 4 tells us this. It says, Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient because of the journey. See, what the people wanted was the easy way. They wanted the quickest route. They wanted the easier route. But that was not the way that the Lord directed them to go. They had to go around instead of straight through the land of Edom. And so then we read in verse 5, The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. What was their food? It was manna. What was manna? It was a foreshadowing of Christ. And they loathed it. They hated it. But do you see what they're doing? God had given them, just like Adam, Everything they needed, water, food, safety. He'd given them everything they needed, and it wasn't enough for them. Sounds a lot like Adam, doesn't it? They weren't trusting in God. They wanted more than what God had so graciously provided for them. They weren't thanking God. They weren't content with all that God had provided including their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. And so what was God's response to this? These are people who are sinning against God. They're discontent with God. They think they know better than God does. And so how does God respond to them? He disciplines them. He chastens them. Verse 6 tells us this, The Lord sent fiery serpents, which I take, by the way, to mean that either when they, when they bit people, uh, it, it felt like fire, or uh, it caused, more likely, their, their fever to raise and kill them. Verse 6, the, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. Now you might say, well, that sounds just cruel and unusual on God's part. But what we have to understand is that the people sinned. They weren't satisfied with God. They thought they knew better than God. That's, that's sin. And what's the wage of sin? It's death. It's death. And so, as a result, many died. Not all of them. But many died. And in fact, the people, as a result of this, came to repentance. They, they came to, to recognize their sin. Verse 7 says, So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. It's beautiful. I love that. The people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And so Moses intercedes for the people. Friends, God loves True repentance. He loves true repentance. For the soul that cries out to him for mercy in repentance, God is quick to be gracious. And so God responded to Moses' intercessory prayer by giving them a solution. 
Notice they had said, remove these fiery serpents from us, but that's not what God does. Could he have? Of course he could have, but that's not what he does. He could have just healed everyone on the spot, just said, okay, I'll just make it so that you guys have uh, an, an immunity to the venom of these serpents. Could he have done that? Of course he could. He's God, but he didn't. Instead, he tells Moses in verse 8, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses does what God commanded him. Verse 9 says, And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. So when Jesus says to Nicodemus and those listening at the Passover festival, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. He's saying that he is like that bronze serpent in the wilderness back in Numbers 21. In in fact, this helps us to understand that God sending the fiery serpents and telling Moses to make a a bronze serpent the cure uh, is actually a picture of the gospel found right there in Numbers 21. The bronze serpent would be what we refer to as a typology, a typology. A typology is just something in the Old Testament that points forward to what was to come. Uh, So so Noah's Ark, for example, would be a typology, a picture of Christ by grace saving his people from his wrath. And and this story of of the bronze serpent being the one cure for the bite of these fiery serpents is also a typology. It's a picture of God's redeeming grace given freely in Christ Jesus to all who will believe. Jesus is saying, in his response here, he's saying that he, the Lord Jesus Christ, is God's appointed cure for sin. It's God, he is God's appointed refuge against God's holy and righteous wrath. Foolishness to those who are perishing, but the wisdom of God unto salvation for all who believe. See, to be lifted up, This is another interesting parallel. The serpent had to be lifted up, and Jesus is saying, I have to be lifted up too. But to be lifted up in first century culture was was not a positive thing. Uh, It it didn't necessarily mean to physically be lifted up. It wasn't the same as saying exalted, for example, or or, or encouraged. Uh, Like we we say that something was was really uplifting, right? Okay, well, that's not what this means when Jesus says that. That's, not how, uh, that, that's how we might use it in our culture, but that is not how John is, uh, is using that term. That's not how Jesus is using that term. John uses that term, lifted up, as a euphemism for death. So Jesus is saying, I came to die so that all who believe in me will live. So think about the story that we just read of the fiery snakes, the fiery serpents, the bronze serpent for a moment. Why does Jesus refer to this? Wouldn't there have been an easier way to make his point? I mean, why doesn't he just say, hey, I I came to die so that everyone who believes might live? 
Now, I think in order to understand why Jesus points to this story, we have to put ourselves in the shoes of the Israelites for just a moment and to imagine what must have been going through their minds when they're told that the cure for their ailment is to look at this serpent. No matter how far away they were, if they would just look at this bronze serpent, they'd be healed. What had to be going through their minds? God's cure for these serpent bites was 100% the idea of God, the providence of God. How many of you, if, if you were just bitten by a, a, a poisonous snake, a venomous snake that you, that you knew was going to kill you because, say it's a rattlesnake, rattlesnakes will kill you if they bite you eventually if you don't get treated. How many of you, if, if you were bitten by a, a, a rattlesnake, for example, would trust a doctor that came to treat you and just said, well, if you just take a look at this thing over here, you'll be fine. What would be going through your mind? I mean, personally, I'd say, do you not have some kind of anti-venom for, for this? I mean, don't I need some kind of medicine? Uh, what kind of doctor are you anyway, exactly? I mean, wouldn't an idea seem, at least on the surface, to be absolute nonsense? Wouldn't it seem like foolishness to you? Of course it would. Of course it would. We'd say, you know, science knows better than this. And science can do better than this. We, we know enough about snake bites and venomous, uh, venomous snakes to know that this kind of remedy won't do the job. And on, on a purely naturalistic level, ruling out the supernatural for just a moment, hypothetically, on a purely naturalistic level, that's entirely and unquestionably true. But that's part of the point. That's part of the point. That's part of the reason Jesus points to this story. He's talking to people who think that they're good, who think that they're righteous, who think that, they, that their good works are sufficient to please God. He's talking to people who think that they are righteous enough to stand before God on their own merit. On their own merit. But the reality is that they have all been bitten by the curse of sin. And God's solution is something that natural man would deem to be absolutely ridiculous. Absolutely foolish. James Montgomery Boyce says, quote, It almost goes without saying that in itself the remedy proposed by God and enacted faithfully by Moses was absurd. End quote. Yeah, in man's eyes it would be deemed as foolish. Maybe some would say that it's even superstitious. But the truth of the matter is that it was the power of God to save all who would look to the serpent from certain death. So the power of this illustration, the power of, of Jesus pointing to this, the parallel that Jesus lays out, is found by comparing what God instructed the people of Israel to do with every other cure that the people might have imagined and in their flesh even preferred or chosen over what God was telling them to do. So what might they have done instead well, maybe they would have imagined uh, you know, that an anti-venom would be necessary. That they, that they, so they would seek out some type of medical concoction or, or solution that they could apply to themselves. But part of the point of the story was that no human concoction, no 
human remedy, no human invention would save them from death. The cure was entirely supernatural. It was entirely divine. And so the parallel here is that all of humanity has been bitten by the deadly bite of sin. All have fallen. All have willfully transgressed God's law, both by nature and by deliberate choice. This deadly venom runs through every strand of our DNA from the moment we are conceived. How will we be saved from this deadly bite of sin? God himself is the only one who can provide a cure. See, every, every religion in the world that's been invented by man is based on doing this or doing that in, in hopes of remedying this ailment, in, in hopes of pleasing and appeasing God on our own, apart from his work in us. And this is what Jesus is confronting. This is nothing more than, than vain and empty religiosity. If that is what man trusts in, his own best remedies, his own righteousness, his own good works, he will remain uncured, lost, unregenerate, dead in his sin, destined for hell. Instead, the means of salvation that God has provided is to look to Christ in faith, in belief, which is as foolish to a natural man as the idea of looking to a bronze serpent to be cured of a snake bite. A second solution that people might come up with is to say, well, you know, we can beat this, but we have to work together. We're better together. We're stronger together. We're smarter together. So let's increase taxes and let's use our tax dollars to fund a team that'll do some research and that they can specialize in in hunting down these serpents and clearing them out so that we'll be safe. So what they'd do is they would send some, some representatives to be interviewed on CNN where they would assure us that their task forces and their scientists and their exterminators are all hard at work finding and killing or, or maybe just relocating because we wouldn't want to kill a snake, uh, the, these dangerous snakes. And as the snakes continue to proliferate, as they continue to become more and more and more of a problem, They say, well, we need to raise tax dollars even more. And celebrities start hosting dinners in which attendees pay $10,000 for a subpar dinner and the proceeds go to help fund this project. We're better together. We're stronger together. We're smarter together, say all the humanitarians. But friends, sin is not cured by man's progress. There's currently a very strong movement in this direction, upholding the idea that we're better together, we we can make each other better, all we need to do is develop better tools, better education. Man can overcome sin if we just work together. That's part of the ideology driving the social justice movement. Is that we don't have to to go at the at the root of this problem. All we need to do is address the behavior. There's an explicit denial of the reality of sin. A denial of the reality that sin infects the heart of every man, woman, and child. And there's an implicit acceptance of the idea that sin can be overcome by 
informing each other better, by, by education, by teaching people to be better and to do better and to know better. But friends, sin is not cured by human progress. Sin is not cured by by human progress. If anything, what happens when progress is made is that we trust more in ourselves and thus sin is exacerbated. It's worsened as man puts more and more confidence in himself, more firmly in himself and in his fellow man. Progress doesn't draw man closer to God. Progress, if anything, widens the chasm, widens the gap between man and God. The answer to sin's deadly poison is not solidarity. It's not to work together with our fellow man to be better and to do better and to know better. If the Israelites had done that, if the Israelites had had banded together to overcome the fiery serpents, every single one of them just would have died. But if they would simply look to the bronze serpent, they would live. And in a parallel fashion, friends, Jesus Christ is God's appointed cure for sin. God's appointed refuge against his righteous and holy wrath. Yes, it is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the wisdom of God unto salvation for all who believe. A third option. I mean, what else might the Israelites have, have thought to do about their condition on their own with the, with the fiery serpents? James Boyce points out that uh, we should make sure that we understand that the people were not told to pray to the bronze serpent. Now, this isn't to say, by the way, don't get me wrong, this isn't to say that prayer is a bad thing, but the prayers of an unbeliever are spoken in vain. Without faith, You cannot please God. In fact, the Bible says without faith it is impossible to please God. But the prayer of an unbeliever, the prayer of somebody who has no faith, ultimately would boil down to this. God, I hate you. God, I reject every offer you've made to save me. But can you just help me out this one time? How just would God be to say, oh, okay, Without faith, it is impossible to please God, the author of Hebrews tells us. A prayer that isn't spoken in faith essentially falls on deaf ears. And that's why Jesus says that all who believe will have eternal life. Jesus doesn't say that salvation is received by praying. He says it's received by believing. We're saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. Translated literally, literally, what Jesus says here in the Greek is all the believing, and that, that is present active tense. All the believing in him will have, and again, have, will have is in the present active tense. It's not something that we have to wait for. We don't wait for eternal life. It's ours as we believe. All the believing in him will have life everlasting or, or life eternal. So the cure for sin, the good news of the gospel is not, if you say this prayer, you'll be saved. The gospel is that we're saved from the poisonous venom of sin, the the penalty of sin, the power of sin, by grace alone, through faith alone 
in Christ alone. A final option that the Israelites might have been tempted to use to remedy their situation is to just be better people. Now, I understand that this is very similar to the previous option, the progressive option, where we we work together and we know better and we do better, but this is at more of an individual level. They, They could have said, well, we've learned our lessons. You know, each one of us has learned our lesson, and each one of us just needs to be more careful. We made a mistake, but making that mistake actually taught each one of us individually to improve our awareness, to increase our vigilance against these snakes. Now, what would have happened if they would have chosen that option? They would have died because the venom was already in them. So there was nothing that they could do to save themselves. Even if they were to improve their vigilance, even if they were to increase their awareness, what good would that have done? Let's assume that a person, just for a moment, just hypothetically, we're in in fairyland here. Let's imagine that somebody could truly stop sinning. They can't really do that, of course, but let's just pretend for a moment that they could. What would that actually accomplish in terms of a remedy for sin? I mean, this is exactly how people think. They think, I'm, I'm turning a new leaf. I'm, I'm turning a new page in life. This is a new chapter in my life. I'm not going to do this anymore. Or I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm just going to be a better person. Uh, I'm, I'm going to clean up my act. And, and that's great. That's, that's great if they're able to overcome some, some addiction or, or uh, you know, stop committing a certain sin in their life that, uh, you know, they, for whatever reason, decide they don't want to do anymore. But it doesn't change the fact that apart from God's providential remedy, they still stand condemned for their past sins. Let's imagine, for example, that there was a murderer, somebody who, who intentionally and deliberately and, and, and painstakingly took the lives of several important innocent people. And after he's caught, the jury convicts him of of first-degree murder in every case, punishable either by life in prison without the possibility of parole or by death. But as he goes to his sentencing, he stands before the judge and he says to the judge, Your Honor, I'm a new man. I've, I've, I've started a new chapter in my life. I've turned over an, a new leaf in my life. I, I'm, a, I'm a new man with a new plan. I will never, ever murder again. In fact, I haven't murdered one single person since you guys took me into custody. What will the judge say? The judge will say, are you out of your mind? That's great if you've been reformed but you still have a price to pay for the murders you've already been convicted of. And the same is true of us with sin. Of course, we're not able to reach a point of sinlessness in this life. John tells us very clearly in his first epistle that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But even if we were able to truly say, make believe land again, Even if we were able to truly say, I don't sin anymore, the reality is that you are still in debt for the sins you've already committed. If the Israelites had decided that self-improvement at the individual level was the remedy, they all would have died. No one will be cured as the result 
of improving themselves. No one will be cured by becoming a better person, a more moral person. Now the story from Numbers 21, it shows us how much we need God, a remedy given by God. The story from Numbers 21 gives us a beautiful, beautiful picture of the gospel. Sin has infected all. 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 Not just some. All. And God has provided a remedy that defies and is different from every remedy that man might come up with in his greatest wisdom. In man's greatest wisdom, in all of man's scientific knowledge, he could never come up with a plan in which God would remedy sin by taking the sin of all who believe in him upon himself, bearing the wrath of that sin himself, satisfying his own justice in their place, and in exchange, transferring or or imputing his righteousness to them and their sinfulness to himself for all who would repent and believe in him. Man's greatest minds put together would never come up with that plan. 2 Corinthians 5.21 states it this way for us. It says, He, that is God the Father, he made him who knew no sin, that's speaking of God the Son, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This isn't self-righteousness, friends. This is saying our righteousness is entirely outside of ourselves. Our righteousness is from God himself, imputed to us. The people to whom Jesus said this at this Passover festival We're suffering from the same disease that people today are suffering from. Sin. Sin. And just like Numbers 21 doesn't say that all the people in Israel were cured, but only those who looked to the bronze serpent, believing what God had instructed, no matter how foolish it might have seemed, only those who looked in faith to the bronze serpent lived. And the parallel is that only those who look to Christ in faith will be saved from the penalty of sin. People like Nicodemus knew the scriptures. They read the scriptures. They, they did what they thought the scriptures were telling them to do, at least as best as they could. They attended the festivals. They tried in vain to uphold the 600 plus laws that God had given them through Moses. And as a result, they trusted in their own righteousness before God. And it wasn't enough. It wasn't good enough. And today, many people go to church. Maybe they they said a sinner's prayer. Maybe they said it a a few times. They, They might even give very generously to the church. But if they've done all these things, thinking that these things are the cure for sin, they will perish in their sins. God's remedy for sin is this, that fallen sinners would find life by believing in Jesus Christ and that all who come to him in faith will be saved. But this is where the gospel becomes offensive, isn't it? It's where the cross 
becomes a stumbling block for natural men. Because the natural man will deny, first of all, that he's sick. He instinctively denies that he has this ailment. The natural man will deny that he's infected. And even if, even if you can convince a natural man that he's sick, the first thing that he'll do is figure out, what do I need to do to fix myself? He'll look to himself first. He'll consider what options he should pursue. And you know, all these things have everything to do with himself. All of which involve completely rejecting God's command to turn from trusting in his own ability, his own righteousness, and simply receiving the righteousness of Christ in faith. The natural man will hear that, and he'll say, it can't be that simple. That, that sounds like fairy tales. That, that sounds like you're just making something up. The gospel is a humbling remedy for sin. It requires that the natural man lose all confidence, all hope in himself, all hope in, in his own goodness, and accept the fact that we have no goodness within ourselves. None. Not even an ounce. Not one strand of our DNA. And we must come to, the, to terms with the fact that we need more than self-improvement. We need more than education. We need more than solidarity with others because we cannot fix ourselves. We cannot free ourselves. We cannot cure ourselves. We are completely helpless against this ailment. But God, God loves to save sinners. And he provided a remedy. The Lord Jesus Christ dying in the place of sinners, paying the cost for their sin on their behalf as their substitute, satisfying both the wrath of God and the justice of God on their behalf. It seems too easy. It, it seems to the natural man like, like it's just such a foolish idea. And yet, let's remember the words of Paul, who said in 1 Corinthians 3.18, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish, so that he may become wise. It's humbling. It's talking about the importance of humility. God's cure for sin is looking to Christ in faith. That is what we've been commanded to do. Commanded. It's not presented as an option. It's saying, if you want to live, you must look. It's not optional. You can't take just a little bit of it, a part of it, but not the whole thing. Think about it. All who were saved in Israel acted in obedience to what God had provided. It's not about improving your life. It's about surrendering your life. It's about putting your trust and your hope for mercy, not in yourself, not even in the least amount, but trusting entirely in the work of Jesus Christ, who died on the cross but was raised from death on the third day, ascended into heaven, and now sits at the right hand of the Father as our King, as our Savior, as our intercessor, as our mediator, as our God. 
Just as the Israelites were saved from physical death by believing God and trusting in the remedy that he had provided for the fiery serpents, all who believe God and trust in Jesus Christ as his remedy for sin will be saved from spiritual death. They were saved from physical death. The parallel is that we will be saved by, from spiritual death by looking to Christ. A.W. Pink says this in his commentary on John. He says, quote, Man became a lost sinner by a look. For the first thing recorded of Eve in connection with the fall of our first parents is that the woman saw that the tree was good for food. In like manner, the lost sinner is saved by a look. The Christian life begins by looking. Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none else, he says in Isaiah 45, 22. The Christian life continues by looking. Let us run with patience the race which is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of faith. And at the end of the Christian life, we're still to be looking to Christ. For our, for our citizenship is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in Philippians 3.20. From first to last, the one thing required is looking at God's Son. End quote. Our only hope, friends is to look to the cross where the spotless lamb was slain as a substitute for all who would believe in him. Look there. Look there and see that God has provided the cure that you need more than you need your next breath. The question is, have you done what God has commanded as a remedy for sin? I urge you to look to him in faith and to keep looking to him in faith. Run the race of faith with your eyes on him. This is the cure for sin. Not only does it free us from the penalty of sin, but it also frees us now from the power of sin. Because you can't look at Jesus. You can't behold Jesus. You can't set your mind on Jesus and sin at the same time. This is the cure for sin. Jesus Christ alone is God's appointed refuge from his holy and righteous wrath. Yes, it seems foolish to the natural man. It seems foolish by worldly standards, but to those who believe. It is the unfathomable mercy. It is the great redeeming love of God. And it is the power and it is the wisdom of God unto salvation. Let's pray. Our most gracious God, we confess to you that we are sinners, that we have sinned against you both by nature and by choice in the things that we do, in the things that we don't do, in the things that we say, in the things that we don't say, in the things that we think. Everything about us, Lord, is corrupted by sin's influence. 
And so it is with grateful hearts that we see the remedy that you alone have provided. The perfect, sinless, spotless lamb who was slain in the place of all who deserved death because of their sin but would trust in him instead of themselves. What a great gift. Something that our, our greatest wisdom could never come up with. And we thank you for it. We thank you not only for the fact that it frees us from the penalty of sin, but that you are now working to free us from the power of sin. All by looking to Christ in faith. So we pray, Lord, that you would teach us to do this. We confess that it's so easy for us to take our eyes off of Christ. That it doesn't get easier with age necessarily. All that comes with age is an understanding of how little we do keep our eyes fixed on Christ. So we pray that by your grace, you would teach us to fix our eyes more steadily on Christ trusting in him, looking to him, looking to his righteousness and being thankful for the righteousness that we have in him as our substitute. We pray, Lord, that our lives would be changed, but not as a result of behavior modification, not so that we would trust more in ourselves, but so that we would trust more in you. We pray that your work in us would be made evident so that you, so that Christ would receive the glory. And we commit ourselves to that. For his glory. For his honor. In his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcasts.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.